Uh, welcome. This is the second of ALL, the anatomy of the lower limb, and this is the anatomy of the femoral triangle. I'm a bit sorry that I've been a little late uh, with this. I've had a, a rough battle with uh, COVID this week, and um, so still in the middle of that at home. Um, let's try and get on with it at any rate. There are several things here that we need um, to uh, discuss, including the fascial arrangement of the lower limb, the walls and boundaries of the femoral triangle, I guess its clinical surgical significance, the nature of the femoral artery, the sophenofemoral junction. So quite a lot really um, to um, cover. So we should um, begin. You hear me snivelling and coughing away. I apologise about that. Now, the fascia here is quite unique. It's of relevance because we need to go through all of the fascial layers that surround an obstructed femoral hernia, for example, and there's usually one more layer than you think. We need to know the layers in the ligation of the great saphenous vein in varicose veins, a saphenofemoral junction ligation or so-called Trendelenburg operation. There are a number of Trendelenburg operations, but that's one of them. And we need to understand these layers, the localization of these layers in perineal and perianal sepsis. We'll be discussing these layers and spaces later on when we also consider the anatomy of the perineum and the pelvis, which won't appear until towards the end of next year. So some of these concepts, including the later issues on the pelvis and perineum, are actually quite complex and they need reinforcement on some of the principles that we lay down here as well. So in this series we may need to reopen some of the different podcasts in the series to reinforce in your mind the relevant anatomy as it changes. The upper part of the superficial fascia is a discrete membranous layer and it appears as a thin, compact white layer which runs out variably onto the lower abdomen and up as far as the costal margin representing what we call Scarpa's fascia or Scarpa's layer. We recall Antonio Scarpa, there's actually a podcast on him, but it's a major landmark at laparotomy and this layer needs to finish somewhere in the thigh, which it does by fusing with the deep fascia of the, th the thigh. So it's part of the superficial fascia, it's the deepest part of the superficial fascia which runs down into the groin and which below the skin crease of the groin actually fuses with the deep fascia of the thigh, the fascia lata, which just means white fascia. So in effect it's like a sleeve or an envelope that closes off inferiorly. And if you think of it in the other dimension, this attachment, this fusion extends really from the pubic tubercle across the bottom of the inguinal ligament and below that ligament actually. And we'll be discussing the inguinal ligament and the inguinal canal separately, but that's more part of the discussion on the abdominal wall, so it doesn't appear in detail in this series of podcasts. You have to stay tuned for that one. 
the deep fascia of the thigh, the fascia lata, is so called because of its colour. And it's too simple, really, to think of this like a loose stocking on the thigh. One can, I think, think of it that way, sort of, I think, the way Ray Last and others have described it, with a kind of proximal trumpet, in effect, being too wide, then with separable openings for the saphenofemoral junction, like a vertical overlapping slit. The reason for this kind of fascial irregularity is because the fascia lata must have an attachment of irregularity onto the hip bone itself. So you can trace this specific attachment of the fascia lata if you've got a pelvic or so-called innominate bone handy. Then the fascia lata attaches to the pubic tubicle and to the anterior superior iliac spine, and therefore it attaches to the bottom end of the inguinal or so-called pupa's ligament. And from there it attaches to the iliac crest, but here laterally it splits around the muscles, which are called the tensor fasciae latae, so that it runs down to the midlateral thigh. And if you trace these line attachments back, it runs down the iliac crest to the posterior gluteal line. There, of course, it's going to split around the gluteus maximus muscle so that it attaches to the back end of the linear aspera. We've discussed the osteology of the femur already in the previous podcast. The fascia attaches here to a ligament we'll consider in much more detail in the podcast on the pelvis, which is called the sacrotuberous ligament, and that separates the cavity of the pelvis from the perineum. And then it attaches to the ischial bone on the pelvis, and it runs along this bone as the ischiopubic ramus down as far as the pubic bone um, itself. Now this is the point where the individual adductor muscles attach, muscles like the adductors brevis longus and magnus and also the gracilis. And then the fascia lata then sweeps back over the floor of the femoral triangle as the fascia over the pectineus muscle, which of course takes its origin from the pectineal line of the pubis. So that this line is now reflected back like a sleeve, or as I've said, the opening of an envelope, perhaps lying on its side. And it means that there are effectively two layers here, a deep one and a superficial overlapping one, which allows the saphenofemoral junction to form. The deep part of this, that which is already reflected onto the pectineus, extends below the saphenofemoral junction, runs down onto the adductor muscles and merges with or forms the medial intermuscular septum. And the outer end of all of this is a sharp inferior margin in front of these muscles, which represents the inferior crescentic limit of the saphenous opening. And that latter specialised sharp rib is a uh, sharp ridge <coughs> is also called in many books the so-called falciform ligament but that just represents really the lower edge of the saphenous opening so effectively the saphenous opening is then a split off the fascia lata with the fascia lata then firmly attached medially and specialized inferiorly as this thickened falciform ligament the space in front of this is filled with superficial fascia, obviously, which houses the final curvature of the great saphenous vein and which attaches the fascia lata <coughs> over the top medially of the adductor longus, 
but which is perforated by multiple minute lymphatics, and it's hence referred to as cribriform fascia because it has a sieve-like appearance. And in truth, it just looks like loose, real, fatty tissue. It's a bit softer and less robust than the fascia of the falciform ligament, and that which fuses medially over the muscles is the typical fasciolata. If we want to trace the fasciolata down, it has lower bony attachments to the tibial condyles and also to the head of the fibula. And beyond the popliteal fossa, it's part of the deep fascia of the leg. But like any deep fascia, the fasciolata is continuous with bone, where the bone is subcutaneous, such as the pubis, and via its intermuscular receptor. So it is a stocking of fascia, to reiterate, attached around the root of the limb to the iliac crest, directly laterally, to the inguinal ligament anteriorly, to the body and the inferior ramus of the pubis medially, and then along the body to the ischiopubic ramus, the tuberosity of the ischium, and thence on posteriorly to the sacrotuberous ligament of the sacrum. It's got to have an upper attachment like that. At the knee, it fuses with the patella and the femoral and tibial condyles, as well as with the head of the fibula, where it continues on down as the deep fascia of the calf, and where it attaches directly to the dense fascia which overlies the popliteal fossa. It's very variable in its density, at some points being very thin, as the kind of cribriform fascia, which is more superficial fascia, but laterally running as a very thick band from the iliac crest to the lateral tibial condyle as the so-called iliotibial tract, which is the separation point of the tensor fascia latae going one way and the gluteus maximus the other. And these two muscles actually converge towards each other in the thigh from the greater trochanter, but only the deep quarter or so of the gluteus maximus then inserts into bone, into the femur, the rest with the tensor fascia latae becoming the iliotibial band or the so-called iliotibial tract. And I suppose, as, as Ray Lars says, you can think of this as the kind of deltoid equivalent in the upper limb, but it's a bit of a far-fetched analogy. That bony attachment that we remember also means that the fasciolata, between its proximal and distal attachments, sends out the lateral and medial intermuscular septa, which attach to the linear aspera. But that arrangement isn't like the simplicity of the upper limb, which just has an anterior and posterior compartments of the arm and forearm and has medial and lateral intermuscular septa. In the lower limb, the linear aspera takes the same point of attachment of the medial intermuscular septum, separating the quadriceps from the adductors. The lateral intermuscular septum separates the quadriceps from the hamstrings, and the posterior intramuscular septum separates the hamstrings from the adductors. So it's a more complex three-compartment issue it's complicated by having three compartments with some overlap, namely the extensor flexor and adductor aspects with the adductor flexor overlap, which we know. The compartments, like the upper limb, however, do have the fidelity to some extent for their compartment nerves. That is to say that each compartment as defined has its own particular nerve, but because the adductor muscle compartment has been really inserted, it then becomes mixed. Now, I'll explain what I mean. If we were to cut the thigh off at high level, we can look at its axial appearance, and you can do that, obviously, with a CAT scan, appreciate the compartments. 
we might have access to do to a cadaver to do so or you can as i say simply look at a cat scan or an mri if you don't have access you can pull one up off the internet the anterior and antralateral segment is the extensor muscles and the compartmental nerve is the femoral nerve medially is the adductor group and its compartment nerve the obturator nerve and posteriorly is the ischiatic or hamstring muscles and its compartment nerve, the sciatic or ischiatic nerve. Now, the fusion muscle between the adductor and the sciatic compartments is, of course, the adductor magnus, which needs to be like that since the hunterian vessels, so called the femoral vessels, need to straddle a defect in this compartment in order to reach the popliteal fossa. As I've said, its thickness or density varies, being thinner over the adductors and thick laterally and around the knee, where it's assisted by extensions from the tendons of the biceps femoris laterally, the sartorius medially, and of course the quadriceps anteriorly. Now for those interested, I might recommend William Forey's Master of Science thesis, which is available on the internet. He was a South African student, and the thesis is called A Study of the Human Fasciolata from the University of Witwatersrand, if people are interested. It's based on an assessment of a literature review, but also on cross-sectional dissections of the thigh and on MRI images. You can appreciate then that the fasciolata is the fascial skeleton of the thigh, and that in sending its deep um, septi to the same attachment of the bone, that creates tight osteofascial compartments of the lower limb, which are discrete functional groups with discrete neural innervation. Okay, got it? So we want to get on with the saphno-femoral junction and its surgical anatomy. But first we can start, I think, with the femoral triangle. This triangle is quite simple, being bounded at the top by the inward ligament. At its lateral border is the sartorius, or the medial inner border uh, of the sartorius, and medially by the outer part of the adductor longus. Now, to see all of this, you need to remove the fascia larger if you're dissecting, as I know some of you are. Uh, I know uh, some are d dissecting listening to these podcasts. The landmark muscle here is the sartorius. If you dissect this triangle, it has a floor that isn't flat, but it's concave like a pocket or a gutter shape with the femoral neurovascular bundle sitting in the middle. As we know, it's vein artery nerve from sort of medial to lateral or even... Uh, from superficial uh, uh, to deep, or it's a femoral canal, most medially uh, in this case, with the muscles from lateral to medial, in the floor being the iliacus, the psoas major, and medially the pectineus muscles. So the femoral canal sits medial to the femoral vein. That's the slight distinction here. But the vein-artery nerve relationship sits, as we know, all over the body. If we look... For example, beyond the femoral region, we can look at the neck of the first rib and it's vein, supreme intercostal, vein, artery, superior intercostal artery, nerve, stellate ganglion. If we look uh, at, at the uh, hilum of the lung, again from superficial to deep, or uh, it's vein, artery, bronchus in that case. If we look at the renal hilum, it's vein, artery, ureter. If we look at the uh, free edge of the hepatoduodenal ligament, it's vein, portal vein, hepatic artery, bile duct. So it's the same sort of arrangement with whatever the specialist structure actually um, uh, 
uh, actually is. Now, um, one can see, I think, most medially in a deeper dissection between the pectineus and the adductor longus, a little bit of the adductor brevis underneath, and it might even be possible in your dissection to see on top of that the anterior division of the obturator nerve, which lies on the top of the adductor brevis muscle. So really quite a bit to see here if you're dissecting. The superficial fascia here, which we've removed, houses the superficial chain of inguinal lymph nodes, as well as the great saphenous vein in this plane, along with the femoral branch of the genitofemoral nerve, which innervates the skin over the femoral triangle. There are also superficial branches of the femoral artery, uh, which I have mentioned in the past. Now, the contents of the triangle include the femoral vessels running from the base to the apex, and I've said the vein is medial to the artery with the nerve lateral. Um, I won't go into this um, uh, uh, again, um, but... Uh, there is the same arrangement uh, in the hilum uh, over the uh, kidney and also in the free edge of the lesser omentum. We next have the profunda femoris artery running off uh, of the posterolateral lesion and posterolateral surface of the common femoral artery and then running posterior immediately and deep to the adductor longus. The profunda vein runs over the top of the PFA origin. There's then also the lateral and the medial circumflex arteries here, like the upper limb, anterior and posterior circumflex humerals. And these are prominent branches of the profunda femoris. They can sometimes come off the common femoral or from the superficial femoral. The lateral circumflex artery typically splits the multiple branches of the femoral nerve, which here is a lateral neural leash. And the medial circumflex artery passes backwards between the psoas muscle and the pectineus. And these, of course, have accompanying veins. There's a small, deep external pudendal artery that we know about coming from the medial femoral artery, which runs to supply the scrotum or the labium magus. There are, of course, deep inguinal lymph nodes, which run vertically along the medial aspect of the femoral vein. And we mentioned also, I think, the femoral branch of the genitofemoral nerve. So these are the sort of contents of the femoral triangle. There's also overlying this lateral and intermediate femoral cutaneous nerves, which we'll discuss later in regard to the femoral nerve itself. Now, that's, those are the things to expect within that femoral triangle. We have to talk a little bit about the muscles here, as we usually do, since they're the boundaries a little bit more detail about these. So sartorius is the first one. It's a very long strap-like muscle. has an origin from the anterior superior iliac spine and the muscle spirals obliquely across the front of the thigh as part of the roof of the adductor canal running close to the posterior femoral condyle with a tendon lower down that attaches medially to the subcutaneous border of the medial upper tibia in front of the attachment of the gracilis and then the semitendinosus. Now, those muscles are all enveloped by a bursa, which some think looks like a goose's foot, so it's called the pes anserinus. And if you think about it, these muscles, that is the gracilis, um, the uh, semitendinosus, and the sartorius, um, they all represent really guy ropes from each of the compartments, which attach at the same points, kind of embryologically more of significance than anything else. The sartorius is innervated by the femoral nerve, the 
gracilis is an adductor muscle innervated by the obturator nerve, the semitendinosus, a representative of the sciatic component, and innervated by the sciatic nerve. So it's a kind of nice memory point. The subtoris usually has a high and a low innervation, which allows it to be rotated for use as a muscle flap. And the muscle itself also is pierced high up by the intermediate cutaneous femoral nerve and low down by the infrapatellar branch of the saphenous nerve, which reaches the skin between the sartorius and the grassless. The point about rotation of the sartorius is relevant because in the patient you, who <coughs> may have undergone an iliac lymphadenectomy, say for a malignant melanoma, for example, that would actually leave the femoral vessels and the nerve exposed if there's been a complete iliac inguinal lymph node excision. And if there's wound breakdown, uh, that would leave the femoral vessels and nerve exposed, and that can be protected by dividing the origin of the sartorius at the anterior superior iliac spine and just swinging it medially in front to cover the femoral vessels and suturing that top cutting to the bottom of the inguinal ligament. You're not interfering with the blood or nerve supply of sartorius when you do that. So a sartorius transposition taking account of where its nerve supply is, is actually valuable. The nerve supply of two sartorius is, of course, from the anterior division of the um, uh, femoral nerve, which is uh, L234. And its job is to draw the lower limb, the muscle, into a kind of sitting tailor's position, hence its name, the thigh being flexed and laterally rotated. The... Uh, second muscle in this region to consider is the iliacus. And um, now to see this, we need to really be in the abdomen, or more correctly, I think the false pelvis at the flare of the ilium, with the muscle arising really from the hole of the hollow of the iliac fossa, taking its origin from this very large area. You can go and check out the innominate bone now. And this muscular muscle allows the thigh under the lateral half of the inguinal ligament, uh, uh, it, it enters the thigh, pardon me, under the lateral half of the inguinal ligament, and it joins the psoas tendon on its lateral side, forming a sort of composite structure. It runs behind the femoral vessels, and it's inserted into the front part of the psoas tendon, and therefore into the lesser trochanter of the femur, a very small area just below that. And the muscle is separated from the bare bone by a large bursa, the iliac, or some still call it the psoas bursa, which may communicate directly with the hip joint. Muscles supplied by the femoral nerve, or innervated by the femoral nerve, L23, high up in the lower abdomen. And with the psoas, it's <coughs> a very powerful flexor of the hip, course if the muscle is intact it medially rotates the hip and the old so-called psoas abscess which we did used to see quite a bit of is associated typically with flexion and medial rotation of the hip in a presentation <coughs> when the neck of fracture is fractured uh, when the neck of uh, the femur is fractured then the um, muscle pulls the distal femur into lateral rotation, which is a sort of classic feature of a fractured hip, a shortened limb that is laterally rotated, a fractured neck of femur. 
The other muscle that we've got in this region, which we'll consider in greater detail when we come into the abdomen, when we look also even at the thorax and the diaphragm, is the psoas major. Now, it's a muscle I'll discuss in far more detail um, in the next section, which is the thorax, that's after the lower limb. And also, as I've said, in 2023, when we discuss the abdomen. <clears throat> Suffice to say here today that it's an abdominal muscle. Actually, it has a small lower thoracic component, but its origin is from the lumbar vertebrae and the intervertebral discs, but it passes down into the thigh behind the middle of the inguinal ligament, behind the femoral artery, with a tendon inserted into the lesser trochanter. <coughs> it's separated from the iliacus by that bursa which can join the hip joint between the iliofemoral, that's the so-called bigelow ligament, and the pubofemoral ligament. And the psoas has an L1, 2, 3 ramus nerve supply, as we know it's a very powerful hip flexor. Unlike iliacus, of course, psoas is capable of also flexing the lumbar spine. The other muscle that we've got in this region to consider <coughs> is pectineus. Um, it's a stout quadrilateral muscle which originates from the pectineal line of the pubis. And you can see that on an innominate bone. And it slopes from here backwards down to the femur where it's inserted below the lesser trochanter in a spiral arc between the spiral line of the femur and the more posteriorly located gluteal crest. And in front is the pectineus fascia, which attaches as a folded sleeve as the falciform ridge of the saphenous opening, which we've already met, and which continues as the medial intermuscular septum, separating the vastus medialis and the adductor magnus. Now, the femoral vessels lie on pectineus, as does the femoral canal, medially, like a little small trumpet. The adductor brevis and that uh, anterior division of the obturator nerve then lie behind this plane. Now, this fascia in the femoral canal is pretty important here, and the anatomy is not ethereal. It's, it's actually clinically very, very relevant, the relevance of this fascia. If you're operating on a femoral hernia electively from below. You're doing a low groin incision. That's called a, a, Lockwood, <coughs> a Lockwood approach. Sorry, I apologise. The hernia is reduced. And what you're suturing is you're taking the inguinal ligament and suturing it to the pectineus fascia. Now, you usually place a suture using a J needle into the back of the inguinal ligament and bring it vertically onto the pectineus fascia. Now, this is quite different. If you're doing an obstructed case, you're doing that operation from above, however that's done, if you then place the inguinal ligament in apposition to something that you can only really see from above, which is the fascia overlying the pectin pubis or the pectineal line, and this is typically the periosteum in this region, so that is quite different. And my point here is that there's an anatomic difference in femoral hernia repair, depending on whether you have an approach above or below. <coughs> and what you can see to actually obliterate the space of the femoral canal. In each case, you bring the inguinal ligament back to something. 
both operations narrow this space and you put a finger laterally to protect the space or region for the femoral vein because that's the only thing that actually gives. You have the inguinal ligament anteriorly, you have the pectin pubis or pectineal fascia, depending on where you are posteriorly. Medially, you have the so-called lacuna ligament or Gimbernaz ligament. And the only thing it gives is the lateral border, which is the femoral vein. So the anterior border, again, just to reiterate, is the inguinal ligament. The posterior border is the pectineal ligament or the periosteum of the pectin pubis. And the medial aspect is the so-called lacuna ligament or, li or ligament of Gimbernard. So if you're doing it from below, you need to directly place the J suture into the pectineus fascia. And usually these sutures are left as two or maybe max of three sutures and then you don't tie them until the end deciding on how uh, you provide sufficient room laterally for the femoral vein. Now, this muscle has a dual nerve supply. It comes from the anterior division <coughs> of the femoral nerve through L2-3 by a branch that passes behind the femoral sheath. And there's also a twig from the obturator nerve, which is also L2-3. That's the anterior divisions of the lumbosacral plexus, remembering that the femoral nerve are the posterior divisions of the lumbar plexus. But uh, the one coming from the obturator nerve is poorly named the so-called accessory obturator nerve. And I think it would be better to call the accessory femoral nerve since the nerve coming really to the pectineus as an additional is actually from the posterior divisions of L2-3, whereas the obturator nerve is the anterior divisions of L2-3-4. Now, although the management of lower limb varicose veins has changed in recent years, clinical or uh, <coughs> ultrasonographic demonstration of saphenofemoral venous reflux necessitates a saphenofemoral junction ligation, the so-called uh, Trendelenburg operation. And that requires an appreciation of the anatomy of the saphenofemoral opening and its tributaries. Well, we know the tributaries here that represent the venous equivalents of the superficial femoral artery, and there are typically the superficial epigastric running upwards, the superficial circumflex iliac laterally or suprolaterally, the superficial external pudendal medially, and a deeper, deep external pudendal, which, as I've said, may come off the femoral vein in about a third of cases. The superficial external pudendal artery often runs medially here as well, and it may run between the superficial external and deep external pudendal veins, and often it requires a formal ligation. If it's cut, it can bleed quite a bit and stain the tissues, so that's not uncommon. One must make, I think, a distinction between the great saphenous vein and the femoral vein, and I had a registrar uh, who um, ligated the femoral vein twice uh, in, in two uh, varicose veins operations fairly close to one another and has had quite significant morbidity. So one notes, I think, the fascial layers here of the lower equivalent of Scarpa's fascia and its fusion to the fascia lata at the inferior falciform ligament of the saphenous opening. The cribriform fascia, as I've said, is described already, must be clear. 
And the great saphenous vein is a, is a vein that has a very thick muscularis. It's a peripheral vein. So it actually appears fairly white, very thick-walled, much thicker-walled than the, the femoral vein. The femoral vein is blue, and it's a capacitance vessel. And one can clearly show a right-angled subvenofemoral junction. The great saphenous vein is... Then you put a, lig uh, a, 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 a slip of suture around it, but you don't ligate it. Uh, until that junction is seen. And there's commonly also a whitish line that is evident at that junction. So once it's identified, the tributaries are ligated, then the great saphenous vein is doubly ligated at about a centimetre from the junction. I don't bury that area. The saphenofemoral junction opening, uh, as we recall, is often called the fossa ovalis. Now, the landmark of this sphenofemoral junction is about two and a half centimetres or one inch below and lateral to the pubic tubicle. There have been a number of anatomical studies looking at that relationship, and they've shown a normal distribution around this point. Uh, as a cross-correlation, obviously, making the transverse incision below the groin crease, you feel the femoral artery and note that the femoral vein would be medial to this. So you use a combination of these fairly simple landmarks. There's some variation, of course, uh, uh, on the sphenofemoral junction. Uh, the latest paper I found on it was by Tavlasagu in the Journal of Cardiovascular Surgery in 2013, T-A-V-L-A-S-O-G-U, showing the mean branch number actually at 4.9, with only a 3% femoral vein location of venous tributaries. The great saphenous vein, of course, can be bifid in between 10 to 24% of cases in that study. I think it's more actually clinically around 5%. It's not uncommon to see a common, a, a major sort of antrolateral branch, but it may be of no great significance unless clearly varicose if the vein, the great saphenous vein, has already been ligated. On the other end, you can locate the great saphenous vein if a stripper is to be inserted. We tend not to use strippers anymore because of the risk of saphenous neuralgia. Uh, but if a stripper is to be inserted, the great saphenous vein is found on the medial foot and it runs in front of the medial malleolus and then alongside the medial aspect, slightly behind the tibia, with often a prominent anteromedial and anterolateral saphenous vein. We won't discuss the perforating veins here, but typically the great saphenous vein has three or so perforators to the deep venous system with one a finger's breadth, one a hand's breadth and one a hand's span above the medial malleolus. And there's often a posteromedial calf vein which joins the great saphenous vein and the posterior tibial venae comitantes to the deep cilial pump plexus. The blood runs from superficial to the deep venous system as we know during, during normal blood flow dynamics, in other words during normal calf muscle activity, there's a calf pump. Of course, people have got perforator incompetence and chronic venous insufficiency. That's the pathoanatomic feature of limbs with chronic venous insufficiency, as well as those with varicose veins. If one would put a barometric cannula into the superficial vein, then the pressure there reflects the blood pressure in the veins, what one could call, let's say, a hydraulic pressure. But also, if the patient is then standing, it would also add the effects of the hydrostatic pressure uh, 
of where the vein sits in relation to the heart, as though the vein were a, a column uh, of blood sitting um, away from the uh, uh, away from the heart. Now, of course, as we walk, if we had a cannula in that system and we were monitoring pressure like an arterial line, but it's a venous line in this case, we would walk and see the blood pressure fall as it moves from the superficial to the deep systems. So it runs a kind of sinusoidal wave, obviously, with respiration, and then it would progressively fall as a person walks. But in someone with chronic venous insufficiency, that drop would not be evident because of perforator incompetence. The other additional point that we can make, I think, which pertains to the great saphenous vein is the communication between the two systems, the great saphenous vein and the short saphenous vein, part of the so-called saphenopopliteal system, the so-called vein of Giacomini. And that runs to the mid-thigh great saphenous vein from the short saphenous vein, about 70% of cases. It can be detected mid-thigh by ultrasound, and its management may these days be made by ultrasound-guided sclerotherapy, or by some, uh, again, ultrasound-guided endovenous laser ablation. Um, there'll be more of a discussion of the saphenopopliteal junction, and that'll appear uh, in the uh, later podcast as we get down to the um, uh, calf. The um, next area um, to discuss is then the femoral sheath and the vessels here. There's a fascial sheath over the top of these vessels that incorporates the fascia transversalis anteriorly and the psoas fascia posteriorly, forming the effective femoral sheath that fuses about an inch or so below the inguinal ligament with the arterial adventitia. But that does not include the femoral nerve since the nerve runs retrofascially behind the fascia, as it should coming from the lumbar plexus. Now, medially, as we've said, is separate from the femoral sheath as the femoral canal, which expands superiorly as a femoral ring and includes an area referred to as the femoral septum. That's really just an area of fat, and that contains the so-called lymph node or gland of cloquet, which can be the harbinger of a vulval or clitoral neoplasm or a squamous anal carcinoma or melanoma. The boundaries here, as I've said, are discrete. Anteriorly is the inguinal ligament, medially as Gimbernard's ligament or the lacuna ligament. Posteriorly is the pectineal ligament, which is basically the periosteum of the pectin pubis. And laterally, the only area which has some give in it is the femoral vein. Now, as I've already said uh, earlier, closure of this region is different between the Lockwood approach and the upstream approaches like the transinguinal lathysin operation or the higher approaches that may be used, the McKevity or Henry approaches or the Nias approach. Above, one can see the closure of the pectineal ligament directly to the inguinal ligament, but below that can't be seen, and the inguinal ligament is drawn down to the pectineus fascia. There is in about 30% of cases an abnormal obturator artery where the typical obturator artery coming from the internal iliac is actually deficient and it's made up by a pubic branch coming from the inferior epigastric artery, one of the only two arteries that are a branch of the external iliac, the other being the deep circumflex iliac. 
So in this circumstance, in most cases, this abnormally large pubic branch of the inferior epigastric artery runs well lateral to the femoral canal, and it's therefore not particularly relevant. But in about 1 in 10, so that's 1 in 10 of 30% of cases where there's an abnormal artery, so in about 3% of people overall, that rather largish branch runs medially directly over Jim Bernard's ligament. Now, if that's cut from, let's say, an approach below, you can't see that vessel, then it can be associated with very significant and even fatal bleeding. Some have called a little arterial circuit around there the corona mortis, the crown of death. When you see it, having seen it a few times from above, I have to say that it's a pretty piddly small vessel that can readily be diathermic. But if you, and sometimes it's double, but if you see it, um, uh, that's fine. But if you don't see it, it can be associated with catastrophic bleeding. Now, to get back to the femoral artery here, that's located at the mid-inguinal point. It's halfway between the anterior superior iliac spine and the pubic symphysis. And hence, a little inframedial of the surface marking of the deep inguinal ring, which is at the midpoint of the inguinal ligament, halfway between the anterior superior iliac spine and the pubic tubicle. I'll go through this when we discuss the inguinal canal, but that won't be done this year. Um, now, the uh, profunda femoris artery is typically given off at about four centimetres or so below uh, the inguinal uh, ligament on the posterolateral side, and it's usually covered by a profunda vein. The branches here include the lateral and medial circumflex femorals, very much like the anterior and posterior circumflex humerals in the upper limb. The lateral circumflex femoral uh, really separates the many branches of the femoral nerve into a kind of superficial and deep group, and it runs under the rectus femoris muscle. It has several branches. There's an ascending branch, which is part of a trochanteric anastomosis, and that's separate from the anastomosis around the anterior superior iliac spine, or the ASIS anastomosis, which I've already briefly discussed. Uh, the lateral circumflex femoral is a prominent vessel in an open hip approach where the sartorius might be reflected off the tensor fasciae latae, and often it needs to be ligated in front of the hip joint. There is a transverse branch which passes across the vastus lateralis, forming one of the transverse limbs of another mid-thigh anastomosis called the cruciate anastomosis. So we've got three anastomoses in the lower limb that we need to know about, that around the ASIS, that which is called the trochanteric anastomosis, and the cruciate anastomosis. There's also a descending branch from the lateral circumflex, which runs down between the vastus lateralis and the vastus intermedius. The medial circumflex femoral artery runs between the pectineus muscle and the psoas along the upper border of the adductor brevis, and it enters the back or gluteal region between the quadratus femoris and the upper adductor magnus. It too has an ascending branch to this trochanteric anastomosis, which passes along or around the obturator externus, and its transverse branch forms the medial limb of the cruciate anastomosis. 
So there are also four main perforators which come away from the profund ephemeris, and these pass through the substance of the adductor muscle near the mark of the linear aspera, with the first running above the adductor brevis and the fourth below it. So they come out fairly bunched, and these run in a circular fashion from medial to lateral to end up in the vastus lateralis muscle. So they're like big circular arterial anastomotic hoops, and they connect inferiorly with the popliteal artery. And the first of the perforators is, of course, the lower leg of the cruciate anastomosis. So to reiterate, or really to explain even further, the cruciate is on the posterior surface of the proximal femur, and it's the first perforating branch of the deep femoral artery running upwards. That's the inferior limb. It has a branch from the inferior gluteal artery, which is the axial artery of the lower limb. We remember that the median artery is the axial artery of the upper limb. And then it's got a lateral and medial arm or hoop one comes from the lateral circumflex femoral artery, its transverse branch, and one comes from the medial circumflex femoral artery, its transverse branch. So this creates a cross or so-called cruciate anastomosis for blood supply in the mid-thigh, and it probably has to do with an increase in blood flow during activity. Its role provides some kind of alternate muscle flow also when there's femoral or external iliac artery occlusion. Now, that's separate, as I've said, to the trochanteric anastomosis, which is a network between the superior gluteal artery, that's the poster, one of the big posterior branches of the internal iliac, and the medial and lateral circumflex femoral arteries, often joined also with the inferior gluteal, which provides a collateral blood flow to support the femoral head, at least in theory. And there is, as I've said, the other anastomosis around the anterior superior iliac spine, which I have gone through in a number of previous podcasts. The other structure that we've got is, of course, the femoral vein. And it starts off medially, but it comes to lie posteromedially to the femoral artery. It receives the profound femoris vein and also, as we've discussed, the saphino um, uh, femoral junction. The um, or the great saphenous vein. The nerve here is formed from the posterior divisions of L234. Now we're talking about the femoral nerve lying between the psoas and the iliacus, and it's separated by the lateral circumflex femoral artery, as I've said, into superficial and deep components. The superficials are two muscular branches, and they go to sartorius and pectineus, and two cutaneous branches, which are pretty big, and these are the medial and intermediate femoral cutaneous. The deep group of nerves are then the four muscular branches, all to the quadriceps heads, and the nerve, of course, the femoral nerve, terminates cutaneously as the saphenous nerve, and I'll describe that later on in another podcast. The nerve to rectus femoris um, is split and it includes an articular branch to the hip. The saphenous nerve branches in the adductor canal form a subsatorial plexus of nerves before running down into the leg. We'll consider it further, but uh, in another podcast. The hip joint receives, therefore, nerve supply from all of its compartments, the ischiatic as a branch to the quadratus femoris, the femoral as a branch to the rectus femoris, 
and also a branch from the obturator nerve. The remaining area that we need to talk about uh, briefly are the inguinal nodes. And really the inguinal nodes are a group really shaped as a T location in the femoral triangle, which aren't really organised into groups in the same way that they are in the axilla. Even that's a little bit vague to some extent, although they are described uh, in the inguinal region as a vertical group lateral to the saphenofemoral junction, which receives most of the lower limb lymphatics in front of and deep to the deep fascia. There's a lateral group, fairly lateral, below the inguinal ligament, which takes lymphatics from the buttocks and the broad area of the flank. And there's a medial group below the medial half or so of the inguinal ligament, with lymph draining from the infra-umbilical area, as well as from the perineum. So that includes the anoderm, that's the modified squamous epithelium below the dentate line, the urethra, and the external genitalia. And of course, that's of relevance in carcinoma of the anus, but particularly in carcinoma of the penis and vulva. The efferents of all of these groups pass through the cribriform fascia over the saphenofemoral junction, and they drain to about three or four deep inguinal nodes which lie alongside the medial aspect of the femoral vein. The femoral gland of cloquet, which I've already mentioned, takes drainage specifically from the clitoris or the gland's penis, and so we can see how kind of indistinct these lymphatics are. But remembering that the superficial fascia has the fatty superficial layer, which is camperous fascia, and the deeper membranous layer of scarpus fascia. The superficial and deep inguinal nodes are separated effectively, therefore, by the fascia lata, and one can divide the superficial nodes under scarpus fascia. You could into five groups in some books, which are a bit dependent upon the anatomy of the saphenofemoral junction, but we could define them as supramedial, inframedial, infralateral, suprolateral and central. And the deep nodes deep to the deep fascia lie, as I've stated, just medial to the femoral vein, which has to be cleared in an inguinal lymphadenectomy, which might be performed from melanoma, for example, uh, or it might be performed uh, sometimes for a squamous carcinoma of the clitoris or glans penis. The gland of cloquet is the nexus, really, between the deep inguinal group and the iliac or obturator group of nodes. Inguinal lymphadenectomy might, as I've said, be performed for a melanoma, occasionally a vulval cancer. The area is actually incised between the ASIS and the pubic tubicle, and it has a moderate vascular risk because the flaps can undergo ischemia and breakdown. And I think the simplest thing to do with this circumstance is to do a sartorius transposition preemptively to cover the femoral vessels. That's very useful. Skin necrosis is less, I think, if campus fascia is preserved. But the section is continued above the inguinal ligament, taken laterally from the superficial circumflex iliac vein to medially the superficial external pudendal vein, and superiorly to inferiorly from the inframedial inguinal ligament over the adductor longus. The fossa ovalis of the saphenofemoral junction is dissected, leading one to the deep inguinal nodes with lymphadenectomy performed from the apex of the femoral triangle. And the deep lymph node excision includes the most superior node, which is cloquet's node. 
And if you're doing that kind of dissection, it has a range of complications, which include hematomas, seroma, wound breakdown, lymphedema, and so on. As I've said, it's worthwhile transecting the origin of the sartorius muscle, which is the um, ASIS, and then transposing that and suturing over uh, in front of the femoral vessels to the bottom end of the inguinal ligament. Obviously, the nerve and blood supply of the muscle is well below that and is dual, as I've said in many cases. So that, I think, covers the area of the femoral triangle, the importance of the femoral canal, the nature of saphenofemoral uh, uh, junction ligation in varicose veins, and inguinal lymphadenectomy. I think we could probably go into greater detail about classifications of the inguinal nodes, but it's relatively poorly organised and standardised when an inguinal lymphadenectomy is uncommonly performed. So um, I'd like to remind all of those people, um, uh, if possible, if they don't mind uh, contributing um, to us, uh, which they can do on our um, site, which is patron.podbean.com slash anatopod, A-N-A-T-O-P-O-D, all in capitals, all greatly appreciated. Our next podcast is going to be on the anatomy of the thigh. Uh, And I'll see you next time. Thank you.